0: Mark 15, tonight we're picking up in verse 16 and we're going to see the leading up to the cross and then the crucifixion and then next week we'll complete the crucifixion or continue in any way, as we look at the later hours and the death of Christ. So let's, let me read through and then we'll, then we'll pray. they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passer-by, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him, saying to one another, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to this central event in the whole of history, Lord, may you guide our study, guide my words may your word be proclaimed truthfully accurately lord that we might understand what happened and seeing the sacrifice made for our sin we might always be grateful we thank you lord that uh, that you gave yourself for us for our sin we pray the lord that our lives may be given unto you as well. Amen. So, Mark 15. We've, last time, saw the scourging, that brutal whipping where the Romans would take the the flogging that the Jews would give with the short leather straps and they extended the straps, put on glass, metal, bones, such things on the end, so that rather than just whipping with leather on the back, there are these sharp tools wrapping around the body, ripping the skin off. It's a pretty hideous way to kind of start our sermon today, but it's important that we, we remember where we're at, where Jesus was at physically as we approach this point. Never, uh, never... Uh, missed the irony of Good Friday being so-called the the most horrendous and hideous event in history was also the best and most wonderful event of history and you know we we saw last time with the scourging that the uh the simple term having scourged Jesus it, it it can be lost. We have to go back and look at some details and see just how vicious and brutal it was. And we'll be doing the same again today, looking at some of these details so that we can, we can picture and understand what's going on. We're told in verse 16, the soldiers led him away inside the palace. It's the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. So he had a few soldiers that would lead him away uh, following the scourging. Now again, I kind of, for, I don't know if it helps you, but for me it helps to visualize a lot of these things. I think sometimes we maybe have read these passages in our youth. We've, we've read them sort of when we were younger, haven't looked at the details, haven't understood the details. And we've got these kind of false pictures in our heads of what's going on. So I think for me anyway, it helps to really visualize these things. So you have some soldiers taking him uh, inside the palace, and they gather together the whole battalion or cohort. And if you remember from the arrest, it was a battalion that arrested him, and seemingly it's the same battalion, the same group of soldiers. And I told you at the time, there would be around about 600 or so soldiers. So when Jesus goes to be crucified, he doesn't just go out um, to be crucified with, with a few people to do the actual act of crucifixion. There is a whole group, six 600 soldiers who come out. They're not needed. This isn't this isn't them going out to arrest him and maybe he'll call down fire from heaven. Maybe these rumors are true. Maybe, maybe, and, and there's this kind of potential danger. This is a man who's been scourged. Those straps ripping the skin off around his body, ripping through the muscle, ripping down to bone. He could barely stand. And yet the 600 or so, they go with him. And we see why in the verses that follow. They clothed him in a purple cloak, cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Everything we're going to see in these next few verses is speaking to the charges that were laid against Jesus. He was king of the Jews. And the the Jews had used that, as we saw, as a way of of getting the Romans to do their dirty work. Their accusation against Jesus, the thing that they were bothered about, was his perceived blasphemy, claiming to be God, claiming to be Messiah. But for the Romans, they didn't care. They didn't care if he blasphemed or offended the Jews. So, the issue for the Romans was that he was um, the the king of the Jews, had claimed to be so, and was potentially one who would commit an uprising as Barabbas, who has now been freed, uh, was involved in. And so... Um, everything in these verses that follows is a mocking of the perception of his kingship. So they're seeing him as this failed king. They're seeing him as this guy who was going to rise up against Rome. They're seeing him as this, as this man who, who had a, this effort to try and take down Rome, but now it's failed, he's been scourged, he's weak, he's bloody, he can barely stand. And so they mock him. They mock the Jewish hope of freedom. They mock this vain attempt, as they see it, to overthrow them. And so they clothe him in this purple cloak. Purple was the color of royalty. It would be the color that that a king would wear. And they give him a crown made of thorns. For For some reason, I mean, I guess it's because kings today and queens today will We'll still sometimes wear crowns, we have images in our in our fairy tale books of of kings and queens with crowns, but we don't associate with the purple robe so much, and so we've kind of fixated on the crown of thorns. But both of these things equally were pictures of um, were pictures of royalty, and were used there to mock him. It, it's all saying to him, "Oh, so you you think you're the king? Hey, hey, hail king of the Jews." Verse nineteen, uh, sorry, eighteen. They are there mocking him, they salute him. They were given the salute that they would give to royalty. And then they're striking his head with a reed. The reed, we're told in Matthew's Gospel, was given to him as a third um, object of mockery. So we have the purple robe of royalty, they have the crown of royalty, and the uh, king would hold a scepter a symbol of, of royalty as well. And so they gave him a reed to mock that, and then they take the reed and knock him over the head with it. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think people, um, I know when I was younger, would, would think of this, someone being struck with, you know, a bit of a light reed knocked on the head, and you know, a few soldiers gathered around. This is six hundred soldiers, laughing, mocking, big strong guys, scary guys, all gathered around mocking, spitting on him as we see now, and bashing him on the head, a head that has already had skin ripped off it from the scourging, a head that has thorns stuck onto it, being knocked over again by the reed. This is a man who can barely stand, who is at death's door, who has six hundred brave, I use the term ironically, soldiers gathering around him, striking him, spitting on him. And then the last thing they do at the end of verse 19, and this is where we really see the irony, kneeling down in homage to him. What do we read just this morning in Philippians 2? Every knee will bow. Now, Philippians may not have been written at this point, but as we know, that Philippians Philippians passage is is alluding back to Isaiah 45. And Isaiah is already there saying, every knee is going to bow before God. And unbeknownst to them, these Roman soldiers in bowing are showing what every person will ultimately do that God will receive all praise, that every person will kneel before God. But specifically, within the Godhead, the Father, because the Son humbled Himself, will exalt Him, giving Him the name above every name, so that the bowing goes before Him, before Christ. Or if you want to look at the irony another way, this won't be the last time that these soldiers bow before Jesus. verse 20. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his own clothes on him. So what's going on here is this. Remember they stripped him from his his outer clothes. They stripped him from his outer clothes and they did that so that when they scourged him, the ripping goes into the skin and isn't protected in any way by the clothing. And so his clothes now are being put back upon his bare body, which has now been ripped to shreds. Further pain and further suffering. And then, they led him out to crucify him. It was a practice, as they would lead someone to be crucified, that a person, if they were able to, would carry their own cross. That was standard Roman procedure. But when the scourging was bad, they often weren't able to do that. The cross would not be hugely heavy, but it would weigh 30 to 40 pounds. For some people, that might be a struggle anyway. For a strong Jewish man, it wouldn't be so bad. But after your scourging, that's going to feel like hundreds of pounds. Slow step by slow step. We know from other gospel accounts that Jesus initially did take the cross. He took the cross as far as he could, but he couldn't go any further. And so Simon of Cyrene, passer-by, Simon of Cyrene, verse 21, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, he was compelled to carry the cross. This is an interesting thing. So a few things that we know right now. Jesus carried the cross as far as he could, and he couldn't carry it any further. So we now have him at the point of absolute collapse. There's no strength left within him, physically speaking, to lift up the cross. So Simon is called in to do it. Cyrene is modern-day Libya, near uh, the northern uh, coast of Africa. And... uh, he, like so many, were there because it was Passover. They've come to Jerusalem for the festival. We know that in that era, that in that region of Cyrene, there was a large number of Jews. There was a big Jewish community in that region. Isn't that ironic, looking at Libya today and seeing it being, um, you know, this, this very Muslim and Arab area. that At that time, there was a very large Jewish community there. But there was at the time, and uh, Simon of Cyrene is is uh, in the area uh, as many faithful Jews would have done to come and uh, be there for the Passover. We saw in our previous studies, remember, that because there were so many people who were congesting on this city for, for Passover, that they couldn't all fit in. And so Jesus had made prior arrangement for the Last Supper, for his Passover meal to be in the city. But most people, as I said at that sermon, most people who had come in from outside, they had to in their be in their tents outside the city walls and have Passover there. The Passover meal was something that was supposed to be done within the city walls and as I said, they they kind of legally extended the city walls beyond the literal walls to encompass this mass of people. And so uh, Simon would have been probably, like many people traveling from afar, he'd have been camped, tented outside the city walls, technically though for that period in the city. He'd have had his Passover meal there the previous evening. And then what happens, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, but what happens on the Passover day, and, and just remember as in passing, by the way, here, the, Jews, the Jewish reckoning of a day was it started with sundown and it finished with sundown. So a new day was when it went to darkness. So Passover began in the evening, which we consider the previous day. So that would be Thursday night from our perspective. They would have had their Passover meal then. We've then been through the night with uh, Gethsemane and then the trial. And now we're coming out and we'll talk about the the time, but it's early morning now and they're they're coming out and they're mocking him here in the early hours of the morning. And um, on this day, this this actual day of Passover, following the Passover evening meal, there was the Passover sacrifice, this special sacrifice that was made in the temple for Passover. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but what would often happen is that these people who'd have to have been outside the city for their Passover meal the previous evening, now come in from the country into the city for the event of the big Passover sacrifice. And so that's almost certainly why Simon had come now in. He says, coming in from the country. He's come in. The other really interesting thing to note here is that Mark uniquely, the only gospel writer who does it, tells us a bit more about Simon. He says that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. You say, well, why is that interesting? Well, you need to understand how these things were written. Why on earth would anybody say, It's this guy, he's picking up the cross, he's called Simon of Cyrene. You might understand why they might give a name for him. He probably became a well-known figure because he's the guy who carried Jesus' cross. Did Simon really carry the cross? If you just said, some guy carried the cross, you, you wouldn't know that, would you? Oh, some guy, what guy, who? Well, it's Simon, Simon the guy who came from Cyrene. Oh, that's Simon from Cyrene, I've heard of him, I know him. And the idea with the naming of names in the Gospel is that these details could be corroborated, they could be checked out, checked out. And so Mark specifically doesn't just give us this guy's name, he gives us the name of his children. Now remember, right back to the beginning of Mark's Gospel. Mark is writing predominantly to a Gentile audience, probably almost certainly Roman. Now what's really interesting, and you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to real briefly, Is at the end of the book of Romans, in Romans 16 and verse 13, when Paul does his little greetings at the end, he says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Isn't that interesting? So we know that Mark was writing to Roman people. We know that Paul and Mark had connections, and there they they have a connection in the Roman church. That Rufus, who almost certainly is the son of Simon of Cyrene, Simon's wife had become a dear friend of Paul and helped look after him. And so, Mark is writing to the um, Roman people his gospel, and Simon of Cyrene, his son, has become part of that Roman congregation. Isn't that amazing? So what he's doing in writing this, he's saying, here you go, Romans, here's the Gospel, and you want to check out the details? Go have a chat with Rufus or Alexander. Isn't that amazing? You know, sometimes when people look at the evidence of the crucifixion of the resurrection and what have you, they'll, sometimes you know, unbelievers will turn to secular historians. As if somehow, well, we, we can't turn to the Bible because that's biased, so we'll just, we'll just check what the secular historians say. Luke is regarded among scholars as one of the greatest historians of his era. He was an expert at record, pardon me, recording history. He knew what he was doing. And all of the Gospel writers are constantly giving us details that could be checked out. John saying, Oh, it happened by this gate over here. Mark saying, hey, go speak to go and speak to this person. Luke, in particular, being the historian, gives us all of these specific details of names and people and what they did and what they said, things that could have been checked out and corroborated. And of course, as we saw at Easter, the ultimate example of that is when Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus, after his resurrection, finally appeared to 500 believers at once. And then he says, most of whom are still alive. In other words, go and ask them. Go check the evidence out for yourself. So there's an interesting little bit in passing, Simon of Cyrene, you know, who knows exactly how this panned out. but almost certainly this led to his salvation, the salvation of his family, and it seems as if at least one of his sons and his wife, and perhaps the whole family, have been based at the church in Rome and uh, were perhaps integral to this gospel going out. So Simon carries the cross for Jesus, and they get to the place, and the place when they're going to crucify him is called Golgotha which means place of the skull Golgotha comes is an Aramaic word literally as it says here means skull Golgotha means skull um, in Greek when it says place of the skull the word for skull is cranium, which is where we get our word cranium from hence skull but Then as church history goes on, Latin becomes a significant language in Europe, in the church, and the word was translated again, and the Aramaic Golgotha, the Greek Cranium, becomes the Latin Calvary. So, in a sense, the name of our church is Skull Baptist Church. That's what it is. That's what it means. And it was called the place of a skull almost certainly because it was the place where crucifixions happened, where people died. It was the place, some have suggested it's to do with geography and how it looks and stuff, but it seems far more likely that this was um, due to the fact that there was a specific place where these deaths occurred. It was a place of execution. And uh, it is a place that um, we're, one of the sites that were fairly sure of the location. The first 15 bishops of the church who were all Jewish believers all agreed on the location of the site of crucifixion and then when the Uh, Bar Kokhba revolt. Remember we talked about the two revolts. There was the revolt in 70 AD, at least the destruction, and then there's a second wave about 60 years or so later, and uh, that was then the end of all Jewish rebellion and the the final second wave of the scattering of the Jews from the land. But when that happened, the Emperor Hadrian, uh, famous in England for his building of a wall between England and Scotland, but the Emperor Hadrian uh, then again, as an act of mockery and to, and to an act of irony, if you like, he then puts uh, pagan worship on the same site as an insult to the Jews. This one who was crucified, king of the Jews, they now have this, um, you know, and also, of course, the place where Jewish uprisers were crucified, they now put a pagan worship on the same site. And then... I know another 200 or so years later in 336 AD, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was built there and it stands there to this day. Interestingly, some have, have um, queried that because the church is within inside the city walls and Jesus, as we'll see in Hebrews when we get to chapter 13, was crucified outside the city walls. The reason for the difference is the city walls now come out further than they did in that day. Remember, it was all destroyed in 70 AD. So with the additional wall building, it's this day within the city walls, but at that time it was just outside. And so um, they brought him to the place, Golgotha, place of a skull. Verse 23 now, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Matthew talks about gall, we have this, this mixture with wine, the reason it was given, it would have been fairly strong, and the, part of the reason it was given was simply as a, as a method of making the person light-headed. Sometimes, because of their already weakened state, they became unconscious, which is exactly how you want to go when you're being crucified. At the very least, it would act to a degree of pain at least in a minor way. It would have been a blessing for whomever it was offered. When they're up there on the cross, they weren't allowed to be given any food. They were left there without food to die. I mean, because sometimes these deaths didn't take hours. Sometimes they would run over a day, depending on how bad, badly the scourging was. So you get some who don't even make it to the cross because the scourging is so bad. And you get some who aren't scourged so badly and can carry their cross and go to the cross. We'll talk more about how death happened on the cross, but some would just bleed out. And so, Jesus seems to be someone in the middle of those extremes. But um, certainly the wine and the myrrh mix that was offered would have been helpful to anybody. But Jesus refuses it. And I think it's important we understand why. I don't think it's a sin to seek refuge in suffering. We are not called to be masochists. We're not called to kind of say, Ah, yes, suffering, hallelujah, this is wonderful. You know, that's not it. You know, when James talks about considering trials joy, he says, consider it as joy. It's not joy, but you consider it to be. You think of it differently than it actually is, you know. There is this comparison going on. The, the idea of masochism, of course, went right into much of the Catholic Church in the Middle of the Ages, where there'd be this self-flagellation, this self-whipping that they would do to atone for their sins. Because, of course, in the Catholic Church, the, the blood of Christ is somehow not sufficient enough, and there's this constant re-sacrificing and re-punishing and what have you. So they would do that kind of thing. But... That, that's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. The reason I believe that Jesus refused it is because his work was not yet done. It is, it is not that he's like... He, well, firstly, he's not on the cross. He doesn't want to pass out before he gets there. Secondly, there's things to be said on the cross. And there is the wrath of God that's going to come on the cross. He hasn't made it there. He doesn't want anything that's going to hinder or prevent that journey. He has to be of a clear mind, the spiritual warfare of a sort going on the cross. There's Jesus saying something incredibly important that we're going to see in a moment upon the cross. And so, Jesus, what little strength he has left, needs to be maintained Whereas most of the people being crucified would want their strength to leave them as swiftly as possible. With Jesus, he needs to keep what little wits he has left about him, so to speak. And, verse 24, they crucified him. It's just like the mirror, isn't it, of where we finished last time. It's having scourged Jesus. Just the almost an aside and yet this is this brutal thing that they would have well understood the readers of the day and in the same way here it simply says they crucified him. We we know bits about it of course but not everything. There were various types of crosses because of the sign going above his head and other things, we're pretty sure we know what type of cross it was, the T1 that we, that we um, the small T with the, the, bar, the beam going above vertically and the one going horizontally that we're all so familiar with. Um, but he would have been crucified. And in being crucified uh, there, he would have had... His hands initially nailed to the cross. Now when we look at pictures and artwork we see the nails going through the palm and that wouldn't have been the case. The Greek word for hand encompassed really from the fingers right back down almost towards the elbow in many cases. And he was almost certainly uh, crucified, this is how it's typically done, through the wrist. Therefore the bones there are able to hold him up. If you crucify through the, through the palm, just rip through. So he was, what would happen is, is that we think of the cross so often as being this one um, single unit. But in fact what would happen is it was one piece that was attached to another. And he would probably have been crucified on the horizontal beam first. And so his hands would be put out, nails through his wrists, and he would be nailed. And then the beam in which he was on would be lifted up and slotted in to the vertical beam. That lifting of him would have knocked his bones out of joint. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And he would have been put on. His two feet would then have been placed one upon another and a single nail would drive through them both, exiting the bottom heel and affixing to the wood. Once that was in place, there would be a block that was placed Mm. by his feet at the bottom and nailed into place. We'll talk more about that next time, but as I alluded to last time, crucifixion was often a death if he didn't fall unconscious, if he didn't pass out, if he didn't bleed to death, it was the death of suffocation. The hanging down, the person was unable to breathe, the lungs would be collapsed in, they wouldn't be able to breathe, and so they would push up from their feet. And so the nail was nailed through the feet so that the legs were bent, so once the block was in place, the uh, person crucified could push themselves up to take a breath, and then back down. Little pushes, little gentle movements, until out of exhaustion, they couldn't lift themselves up and take any more breaths. It puts the whole expression that we see in the Gospels, and he breathed his last into very clear detail, does it not? And so that's how crucifixion was done. That's how it was done. Those who were crucified under Jewish law comes from the Bible, not just a Pharisaic made-up part, but there was a special curse for them. Curse for those who were hung on a tree, as the crucifixion was seen as. And they had to be buried before sundown, according to Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. And so this cursed death in the Jewish mind, this brutal death from the Rome that came from the Roman mind was what was done and even then with that crucifixion the suffering goes on moment by moment hour by hour breath by breath while this is going on we're told that they divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide what each should take And this is how it happened, is that typically there would be four soldiers required to do crucifixion. The beams, putting them up, the nails, four soldiers are involved in the crucifixion process. Can you see? There were 600 who came out. Four of them were needed. The rest are just there to mock, to laugh, this perceived attempt at usurping Rome. So four of them were involved. The Jews, the Jewish man would typically have five main pieces of clothing. He would have an outer garment, an inner garment, like a tunic, and then he would have a little head covering, like a skullcap thing of sorts, his sandals, and then there would be a big outer robe. And Jesus would have... Uh, as typically would have happened, is the soldiers would have had the first four of those items of clothing, the outer garment, the inner garment, the um, head covering, and the sandals. Those four items would be distributed amongst the four soldiers. And then, sometimes with the robe, depending on the value of it, sometimes with the robe, there was, uh, it was cut into pieces, so they would have a quarter of it each, because it's expensive material, or well, sometimes they would cast lots on who would get it. So that seems to be what would happen. Four soldiers casting lots over which would get each of the four pieces that were distributed. And then we know in Jesus' case from elsewhere, on which one would get the outer robe. And so that's what happened, Verse uh, 24. Now at this point, I want to turn briefly to a passage that we're going to spend the bulk of our time in next week. Okay? And you'll see why when we get there. Psalm 22. So you can stay in Mark's Gospel, stay in Mark 15 if you want, put a ribbon or a bit of paper in there. And then Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Um, I'm, I'm going to touch on this briefly now. I'm not going to spend as much time as I'd like, mostly because we're going to spend the bulk of our time in Psalm 22 next time. And I think when we see the first verse of Psalm 22, we'll know why. Psalm 22 is a psalm of lament, and it begins with this well-known cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus says that from the cross, we'll come to that passage next time, he's quoting from Psalm 22. He's quoting the first verse. He's pointing us to Psalm 22. But when we look at that in more detail next time, I don't want us to omit some of the important details. Let's read through briefly, I won't deal with all of it, we'll pick up on bits. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. This is a psalm of lament from David. David wrote this psalm, he was a man who lamented many times, he was a man who endured much suffering. But it was understood very early on in Jewish history, way before Christ, that this was a messianic psalm that it implied not merely to David, but to David's key messianic descendant. You are holy, yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. In other words, in the midst of lament, I'm going to trust you God, because you've proven to be faithful in the past. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. That wagging of heads is a phrase we're going to see in just a few verses time. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So we see the mocking and yet we see more trust yet you who yet you are he who took me from from the womb you made me trust you at my mother's breast. on you i was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my god be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help so being a jew he was born into a covenant and therefore in that covenantal sense he was god's from birth And so in saying this, he's appealing to the covenant. And God is the covenant-keeping God. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Again, pictures of threats, and we'll talk more about that next time. Here's where I want to focus. Verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. That's exactly what happens when the vertical beam, they're lied down, probably dirt in the back on the floor. I don't know if they're held up or not, but at some point, whether they're, they're nailed to that cross beam, that cross beam, once the nails are in the wrists, before the nails go into the feet, that beam has to be lifted up and put onto the vertical beam. And at that point, the bones go out of joint. This Psalm was written centuries before the Romans existed, let alone thought of crucifixion. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. On the cross, you could have fluid, but Jesus just rejected it, remember? There's the dry mouth, tongue sticks to my jaws. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You know what? I know that when the Bible says that God has, as a judgment, placed blindness on the Jews, that it's true. Because how could a Jew read this and not see Christ? (laughs) They've pierced my hands and feet. Rome didn't exist. Crucifixion didn't exist. And yet this is written, and they divide my garments. You know, Mark's readers, as believers, coming to know the faith, may have understood Psalm 22. You you can be sure the early Christians would have been pushing Psalm 22, and people would have been getting to know it real quick, having been saved, if they weren't from Jewish backgrounds. But the Roman soldiers clearly didn't know Psalm 22. They were completely unaware that they were fulfilling Scripture as they mocked Christ and as they cast lots for his clothing. Anyway, we could keep going with Psalm 22, but I don't want to spoil next week. Because for us to understand why Jesus points them to Psalm 22... We mustn't just look at the first verse he points them to we've got to look at the end of the psalm as well so that's what we're going to do next time but i just wanted you to see that while we're talking about the um uh the bones being out of joint at the crucifixion while we're talking about the garments being divided and cut lots being cast that we could see that in prophecy centuries beforehand so back to mark 15. back to mark 15 verse 25 now verse 25 and it was the third hour when they crucified him it was the third hour when they crucified him this is crucial Um, we've been a little bit through the Roman watches of time the first watch, the second watch, third watch, fourth watch through the nights, the rooster crowing being one of those watches and what have you And when we get to the third hour of the day, the hours would start, and of course, this is, this is, you know, they weren't even using sundials much, I mean, this was based on the sun rising and what have you, so we're talking approximations here, okay, no one had a digital watch with, you know, GPS satellite updating, you know, so don't hold me to the, to the exact second, but this is approximately the third hour, and it would be um, 6 a.m. And again, it varied from year to year, because they're going by the sun, uh, sorry, by the time of year, because they're going by the sun, but, you know, we know what time of year this was. So 6 a.m. was when the final watch of the night ended, and the morning began, so the third hour would be 9 a.m., as we would think of it in our modern time 9 a.m. why is that important well, It's important he's been taking us through this time by the way hasn't he right the way through the different watches he's taken us through these these uh, time periods and this is important because 9 a.m. was the time that the special Passover sacrifice that was made in the temple why Simon of Cyrene had come into the city walls it was exact time that it was made When the sacrifice was made for Passover, not the sacrifices that were done, the the killing of the lamb that was eaten at the meal in the evening, but when the special sacrifice for Passover was made in the temple. We may talk about more of this in the next week or two as well. But when that was made in the temple, at the same time that there in the temple, that sacrifice was being made, the sacrifice that mattered, the sacrifice that counted was being made outside the city walls. So much of Scripture fits together like the pieces of a puzzle coming together with just this time given to us. In the book of Hebrews, which we're doing as you know in the mornings, when we get to chapter 13, the the writer there makes a huge um, point of the fact that you don't want to stay in the camp Jesus went out of the camp to be crucified. They, in the camp, if they stay, they're associating themselves with a temple sacrifice that was made that day. But the whole of Mark's Gospel has been going through this condemnation of a temple. Remember chapter 11 and 12, 10, 11, 12, where he's talking about the temple and the destruction of a temple. The fig tree being judged was a judgment against the temple and the temple system. It's now come to an end. And that sacrifice that was made in the temple was the old way and it was done and it was finished and the new sacrifice to replace that. One sacrifice for all time, the death of Christ, our Passover lamb was made at the same time outside the city. It's just horrific all of this and yet beautiful how it all fits together. And so, with that, we can move fairly swiftly through the remainder. The inscription of the charge against him read the King of the Jews. We know elsewhere in the Gospels that the Jewish leaders weren't happy with that. They, they didn't want him to, to be seen as that and remembered as that, but that's the reason and that's the mockery and that's what's written. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. We saw that same word last time. That word was the word used to speak of Barabbas. Barabbas had been arrested with a group of people committing insurrection, almost certainly, and this group, Barabbas has been lucky and he's been freed. Barabbas, remember last time, son of the father, the irony of that, that the son of the father goes free. The one who is guilty goes free, so that the real son of the father, who's innocent, goes to pay the price and we who believe have been given the right to be called children sons of god and so barabbas went free but the others don't go free now i know that one of these later repents from other gospels but the the reason that mark is omitting that detail is mark is painting this picture for us you see while barabbas represents those who believe and go free in exchange for the guilty there are others who are guilty who don't go free. There are those who place their faith in Christ and so his death is in their place for their sins. But there are others who are guilty who reject Christ. And that's why that's why these are seen to be those who mocked him. We see that at the end. But let's keep moving. Verse 20, uh, 28, 29. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who will build the, destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him uh, to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. We have the mockery from these different groups. We've had the mockery from the Roman Gentiles. We have the mockery from the Jews saying, hey, you you think you can destroy a temple and rebuild it? Well, coming down from a cross should be easy. Crazy ironic, huh? He said to them, Literally, he said, destroy this temple. Most versions say, if you destroy this temple. But in the Greek, it's actually a command. Destroy this temple. I'm telling you, you destroy this temple, and then I'll rebuild it in three days. That's the authority. That's the proof. That's what you need. And they are raising that issue at the very moment that, in a sense, the Jewish leaders have obeyed him and they have, or are in the process of destroying the temple of his body. And he will rebuild it in three days, on the third day. And so, the uh, people mock him, the chief priests mock him as well, and the, the scribes, those religious leaders who've wanted this moment and are now reveling in it and rejoicing in it. We knew you weren't the Christ We knew you were a blasphemer. Christ. Right now, they see him on a cross and they know that he is not the Christ. They know he's not the king. They know he's not the Messiah. He claims to be able to save other people, save them from their sins, do miracles from them, but now he's stuck on a cross. They have, in their eyes, been proven right. This is no Messiah. Guys, these are the scribes. That means the experts in the law. These are people who had almost certainly the entirety of what we call Old Testament memorized in at least one language. Who dedicated and devoted their entire lives from childhood to the study of this. They had Psalm 22. They had Isaiah 53, and yet they're blind. They didn't see the suffering servant in front of their eyes. And it is, I believe, appropriate and right that this section ends with the statement that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. It's it's what I just mentioned previously. It's... It's a clever literary device where Mark is putting the reader here into the story. There are the guilty, the robbers, who've been caught. They've been tried, they've been found guilty. And one of them, Barabbas, goes free. Because Christ takes his place. The others are on the cross reviling him. That's why Mark omits the one who is saved. That's why Mark is talking about others generally who are reviling him. Because Mark is using this literary device to point to us and say, essentially, who are you going to be? Are you going to be the one that goes free in an exchange? Are you going to be a son of the Father? Barabbas, son of the Father. Or are you going to reject him, mock him, revile him? in which case you will pay the price for your sin as Jesus paid the price for ours. Next time we come to the remaining hours on the cross, Jesus' reference to Psalm 22 and the wrath of God being poured out on the lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And tonight especially, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. How easy it is for us as Christians to just say he was crucified for us. For those words just to slip off the tongue. Thoughtlessly, just a statement. And yet we know he was scourged and crucified, and that horror and those details that these things occurred because sin is so serious. Because a holy God has to punish sin. And because in your mercy, you sent your son to be punished in our place, to take the punishment for sin that was not his, that we who are guilty may go free. Father, thank you. Thank you that your son endured all this for us. Thank you that we're free. And having freed us from sin, may we no longer walk in it, but walk in the newness of life. Amen.